The coming decades will bring unprecedented environmental, social, and economic challenges. To meet these, it's crucial that we prioritize sustainable and well-targeted infrastructure development. Welcome to Economist Impact Infrastructure for Good podcast series. My name is Philip Cornell. I'm a principal at Economist Impact focusing on sustainability issues. Along with our guest today, I'll be exploring how infrastructure can address critical socioeconomic and environmental needs. And we'll take a look at what countries can do to improve their efforts towards infrastructure sustainability. This podcast is supported by Deloitte and supported by our research partner, Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability. In this episode, we'll explore the major social, economic, and environmental goals of infrastructure for good. In particular, we'll look at how the right planning and strategies can help to put our communities and the environment at the center of the infrastructure delivery process. But before we dive in, let me introduce our experts today. Anthony Kane is President and CEO of the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure, and Rowan Palmer is Program Management Officer at the UN Environment Program. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Maybe I can start by asking you to say a few words about yourselves and your organizations. Anthony, maybe I could start with you. Yeah, so the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure was created in 2010 through a collaboration of three major engineering associations, the American Society of Civil Engineers, the American Public Works Association, and the American Council of Engineering Companies. And we really exist to advance and promote the cause of sustainable infrastructure. Great. Rowan, over to you. Thanks very much, Philip. I work for the UN Environment Program, which is the main body of the United Nations that's dealing with uh, environmental issues. And I work in our industry and economy division. Uh, I'm based in Geneva, and I lead a team here working on sustainable and resilient infrastructure. Fabulous. Well, welcome again to, to both of you. Maybe I can start the conversation looking a little bit at environmental sustainability. You know, when we think about sustainable infrastructure, the first thing that comes to mind are those kind of infrastructures with low carbon and environmental footprints, those which protect natural ecosystems that are resilient to changing climate, things like that. Um, Rowan, you work helping countries to meet sustainability criteria and SDG goals for infrastructure. With climate change such a growing threat, how can countries make sure their infrastructure is resilient and adaptable to climate change? Well, you know, I think this is a, a hugely important question because even under the best case mitigation scenarios, climate change is going to have massive impacts on infrastructure systems around the world. Uh, a study that we did with UNOPS and the University of Oxford estimates that 88% of global adaptation costs uh, to 2050 are going to need to be spent on infrastructure. So incorporating resilience into infrastructure planning and development processes now can help keep those future adaptation costs down. But regardless of the cost, I think it's money that needs to be spent because we're not just talking about the resilience of infrastructure for its own sake, but because the services uh, that infrastructure is providing are so essential to creating uh, resilient societies and, and resilient communities. So, you know, this, this makes it so critical. Um, I think uh, in terms of what countries need to do, the first thing is really to understand the risks. So this would start with uh, assessing climate risks for existing infrastructure assets. Uh, and then this information can be used to plan how to address the risks. And something that's really important here 
that is often overlooked are natural infrastructure assets. So here I'm talking about uh, landscapes and ecosystems or elements of them uh, that deliver many of the same services as built infrastructure assets. And in many cases, we rely on these natural infrastructure assets for things like clean water supply or, or carbon sequestration, among many other things. Um, and so countries really need to uh, assess climate risks to these natural assets as well as built assets. And very often these uh, natural infrastructure assets are providing protective services, things like slope stabilization or flood protection, for example, to built assets. So any climate risks to these natural assets has knock-on effects of increasing risks to the built assets that benefit from the protective services. So it's really important when trying to understand climate risk to look at these two things together and understand the relationship. And then aside from existing assets, it's important to look forward as well and, and incorporate sustainability, resilience into infrastructure planning processes. Great. So, Anthony, you know, we heard about how there's this dynamic interchange between built infrastructure and natural infrastructure. It's such a huge part of adaptation, financing, um, and we have to look at it holistically. But eventually there is a project level perspective. Can you expand a little bit on the keys to infrastructure resilience from that perspective? And what have you learned from your current work about measuring sustainability? Absolutely. So as Rowan laid out, there's both the mitigation impacts and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but then the adaptation and the resilience component, which is necessary now that we know that changes are already going to happen. So one of the things that we do is administer the Envision rating system for sustainable infrastructure, and that gives us an insight into project performance, as you mentioned. One thing that's a key takeaway is that the lowest pursued and achieving credits within the rating system that we're seeing right now are around reduced carbon emissions. So both the operational greenhouse gas emissions reductions and particularly the embodied carbon, which is the carbon associated with the materials of the construction process. So there, though, we're seeing a trend that's changing quite rapidly. As Rowan already laid out, evaluating, first of all, the need for built infrastructure and whether nature-based solutions can replace them, which would be a major reduction in the embodied carbon and even potentially carbon negative uh, through the plants and the carbon absorption. But when cases are uh, there where we have to have a built solution, how do we reduce the embodied carbon of materials? As I mentioned, we're, we haven't seen a lot of pursuit there because of the conditions of the industry. This is a new way uh, a new field, a new way of calculating. The tools aren't there yet, but it's catching up fairly quickly. So many of the conferences and talks that are going on right now are about how do we address embodied carbon. It's going to be a complex solution because it requires manufacturers, owners, procurement, construction. We have to link all of those different phases of the project delivery to ensure that we, one, can reduce the embodied carbon, and two, that we can calculate and know enough to know that we're reducing the embodied carbon of the project. Those are the real challenges there. On the resilience side and the adaptation side, there we're further along. We've been doing this for a very long time, but I think the complexity is around the different scales. As you mentioned, and as Rowan mentioned, the ideal is to have a community-wide resilience integrated plan, but we deliver projects at the project level. So you have to have a two-way communication and coordination there that can be very complex. The individual projects have to be resilient, 
But in the case of infrastructure, they're always connected to a larger system and the system has to be resilient. And then the system exists to serve the community. And so the community has to be resilient. Right now, we're getting kind of a piecemeal approach where sometimes the system is resilient, sometimes the project is resilient. But we know in failure situations, all it takes is one weak link and then the system is down and then the community is in a position where they're at, potentially at risk. So that's where the challenge is right now within our kind of existing governance, funding, planning systems. How do we take these both comprehensive views and project by project views in embedding resilience? And I think Rowan did a great job of uh, outlining that. Yeah, well, um, maybe I can go back to Rowan. So we heard about the need to reduce this embodied carbon. Um, and, you know, that can happen on a project level, but there's going to be some kind of systemic approach of how we can do that. So what can countries do to ensure that infrastructure development is as carbon neutral as possible, both on that, you know, project resilience side and also contributing to a larger system resilience that Anthony was talking about? The uh, embodied carbon is uh, a big part of it and represents a particular challenge, but there's also the the operational emissions as well um, the countries uh, need to deal with. And together, uh, these make up about 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, efforts to, to reduce both embodied and operational emissions from infrastructure can have a, a huge impact in terms of countries meeting their, uh, their targets under the Paris Agreement and uh, SDGs and things. As Anthony said, one of the simplest ways is simply to build less gray infrastructure, you know, pour less concrete. And so look at other ways, alternatives for meeting service needs than necessarily new sort of built infrastructure. But as he said, there's a lot of challenges doing this. And there are a number of sort of policy measures, regulatory incentives that um, governments can take to try and help incentivize these kind of actions. So um, things like carbon taxes, for example, eliminating uh, perverse subsidies. So many countries have uh, fossil fuel subsidies that uh, incentivize car travel or you know, otherwise increase demands for certain types of high carbon infrastructure. Um, the use of new lower carbon uh, building materials or technologies requires that there are regulations or you know, design specifications in place that, that enable the, the engineers and the designers and want to use those types of materials. So um, this, this is all part of the enabling environment. Um, you know, there need to be policies in place that, that enable and incentivize circularity into the construction processes. So reusing uh, building materials and these kinds of things. And I think something Anthony touched on that's a big part of the equation right now is the need for uh, awareness raising and building capacity for uh, various practitioners to use these new tools and new technologies and new approaches. Great. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about specifically reducing carbon emissions uh, from infrastructure, but presumably there's, you know, various other aspects of environmental friendliness, things like biodiversity or ecosystems or resource use. Anthony, what other considerations are important for ensuring that projects are developed uh, in an environmentally friendly way? Really, when you start looking at ecosystems, they have a different scale than our projects, right? And it's not enough to just avoid the edges or minimize a project's impact, but you have to look at the entire ecosystem and the healthy functioning of that ecosystem, which may span 
uh, entire regions, right? Uh, when you think about the migratory patterns of animals and their the way they move, the way that plants propagate. So the World Wildlife Federation has a really good program where they're looking at regional scale environmental planning, which is something that doesn't happen as often as it really needs to, but we need that broad view of where are the ecosystems, where are the critical habitats, and how do we design infrastructure to protect and even enhance them in many cases. Uh, but it can't be just at the project level. The project level is important. We have to be careful about everything that we're doing on the small scale, but we also need that larger planning. Um, Rowan, maybe I can expand that a little bit. We talked about how infrastructure sustainability really impacts sort of sustainable societies. So thinking about sustainability from a more social resilience perspective, what does good infrastructure look like in terms of its impact on people? As a baseline, it should do no harm. So, you know, it shouldn't uh, endanger people or, or be uh, having negative health impacts or, or displacing people uh, and things like this. But thinking more proactively, as we've talked about, we, we build infrastructure to deliver services. So it's really important to ensure that service needs are being met. Asking, is, is there a balance between economic and social priorities when it comes to um, the amounts that are invested in infrastructure? You know, are infrastructure investments meeting the needs of, of business interests? Or are they also delivering or improving access to, to social services? Um, it's also really important to ensure the benefits of these services are delivered fairly. So do, do different parts of, of society or community have access to the services they need? Um, a big issue is, is the issue of gender. Uh, and in many cases, men and women use infrastructure services differently. And so it's important to ensure that infrastructure systems are designed and operated with these differences in mind. A good example is transportation infrastructure. Uh, so in many places, men and women have different patterns of mobility, often related to you know the types of work they do or, or their livelihood. So women tend to use public transport at different times of the day than men, for example. Um, they often make shorter but more frequent trips, um, but public transit is often designed only with the needs of men in mind uh, so it's not convenient or, or even not safe for women to use, which then limits their access to services, employment opportunities, uh, et cetera. So uh, another important dimension of social sustainability is jobs. So the construction and operation of certain types of infrastructure has strong potential for job creation, um, but it's important to try and maximize the benefits of this for, for local communities. So having policies in place uh, to promote participation of local businesses, for example, in, in construction projects, promoting uh, women's employment uh, and this kind of thing. And then finally, there's an environmental dimension to social sustainability as well, related to the right to a healthy environment and the fact that some communities and particularly indigenous communities are more reliant on on natural infrastructure and on nature to deliver critical services and livelihoods than other communities might be. Great. So Anthony, Rowan just mentioned some of these really important risks that we have to look out for, risks that might impact equity of access on a gender basis to economic uh, issues, to natural assets. So what do we do about it? I mean, how can infrastructure development incorporate this stronger focus on social impact and mitigate some of those risks uh, of potential social outcomes. 
Well, the real critical part to start with is having very strong and robust stakeholder engagement. So sometimes, again, in the, in the distant past with infrastructure projects, one, we viewed them as technical solutions. We're solving a problem uh, and we're talking about numbers of people moved or volume of water moved. Uh, but, and we sometimes forget or disconnect that the purpose of most infrastructure is to serve the community. So are we communicating not in the technical solutions that are being provided, but in the value that the community that is being served is receiving? And do they understand that? And do they understand the trade-offs? And do we on the design side understand the makeup, the needs, the values, the goals of the community, the culture of the community? And are we incorporating that into designs? I think Rowan made a great point about often designing for the male gender as opposed to the female gender. But that could be replicated on, on so many other levels, on economic levels, on diversity levels. Are we understanding the culture that is being served and designing infrastructure that serves it to its greatest capacity? Uh, because the greatest technical solution is not going to reach its potential if the community doesn't want or does not use the infrastructure in the way it was intended. So that stakeholder engagement is really important. And again, not just the designers and planners making the decision of what is best for the community and informing them, which is what we sometimes used to think of as good stakeholder engagement, we told you what we were going to do. You're welcome. But having a two-way communication where, again, they have an opportunity to be engaged in the project, to understand the project. And there are numerous benefits to that in addition to designing better infrastructure. It reduces conflicts. It speeds along the process because the community feels like now they're part of the solution as opposed to feeling that this is being imposed upon them, which can sometimes drive the desire to resist or to push back on the project. And that's the often the nimbyism, not in my backyard or in other parts of the world, sometimes violent conflicts that happen to resist infrastructure development because they don't feel like the solution is serving them or benefiting them the way they would like. So stakeholder engagement is absolutely key in that regard. There is a, you know, there is a give and take because the, the general public is not trained to design and plan infrastructure, right? So we do have experts, they have opinions. But it has to be informed, and you have to have people engaged in that way. So I think that's the, the most critical thing that you can do, is having robust stakeholder engagement and having it at every step of the process. So you have to have stakeholder engagement in planning. You have to have stakeholder engagement in design. You have to have stakeholder engagement in construction. You have to have stakeholder engagement in operation. Uh, this is an ongoing process that has to be dynamic, and it has to evolve as the community evolves as well. The other one I would talk about is we're now seeing a shift from one problem, one solution, again, those technical solutions and infrastructure to what we call multi-benefit projects. So how can we solve multiple challenges? And often, how can the infrastructure become part of the community again? By that, I mean, I often talk about how decades ago, we said, you know, infrastructure is unsafe, it's dirty, we don't want to see it. We told the engineers, put it underground, put it in the periphery get it away from us. And the engineers were so great at their jobs that we don't see it anymore. But we see a lot of projects now that take things like water treatment plants and they make them into beautiful amenities for the communities that have public parks, that have soccer fields. We see flood management systems that are parks again. And there is a, a new trend towards how do we design infrastructure to be beautiful, to provide amenities to the community, to be valued by the community. So rather than that nimbyism, you get what I call imbyism in my backyard. People want this. Uh, finally, a, a fact that is important is 
often the general public don't see or understand the 99% of the technical solution that's being provided to them. The average person doesn't know about the complexity of water treatment or energy distribution, and they probably don't care or need to care. They just want to know that their safe services are being provided to them. But often with infrastructure, there's 1% or 2% that the public does interact with. One example, there was a, a stormwater reconstruction in a neighborhood. So this is all underground. And again, if the solution was perfect, it means that the community sees absolutely nothing. Nothing happens if the stormwater system works properly. But part of this, they constructed a, a wetland, one or two acre wetland as part of the stormwater solution. 99% of the problem was being solved underground. But what the community cared about was that one acre, two acre wetland. And they loved it. And to them, that made the months of construction and disruption to their lives for something, again, that they would never see and that would not really have any impact on their daily lives. But having that constructed wetland brought them on board and made them happy to have this project. So again, don't overlook the value of how 1% or 2% of a project can provide an amenity that the community really desires. Amazing. I'm really struck by your comments about the potential for good infrastructure to promote peace and kind of make life more beautiful. Um, those really seem to be the fundaments of a, of a social impact. But you also mentioned this economic lever. So maybe I could follow up and dig a little bit deeper there. You know, infrastructure can obviously be a, a powerful lever. You mentioned a little bit about bringing stakeholders in during, for example, the construction process, the development process. What are some policies or strategies that would be most effective to ensure that infrastructure benefits local economies and local workers? Sure. So I think one item that I am particularly passionate about is shifting our view that economy does not equal cost. And we still have that in a lot of places. We're really just looking at what we call capital costs or the cost to build the project. Uh, and often that leads us into a really myopic view of choosing the least construction cost of a project rather than looking comprehensively at all of the value and benefits that a project can deliver. So in the case of sustainable projects and those multi-benefit projects, like I mentioned, the challenges to delivering those sometimes is that those benefits cross our traditional governance borders. So maybe it's the, uh, the transportation department or the public works department that is redoing a street. But the way that that's done can benefit the water utility. Maybe can it benefit the energy utility, maybe benefit the city through parks spaces. But our system is not set up for all of those entities to participate and fund and receive the benefits of that. So what happens now often is that one entity just has to be responsible and take on that cost and deliver this benefit on their own. Whereas in the future, I see a model whereby we are more sophisticated in understanding the value of these multi-benefit projects in sharing the cost and then in sharing the benefits. It makes economic sense that way, but our systems are not set up right now. So it's still a bit of a hurdle for individual agencies or owners to realize the benefits that they're delivering. And that pushes them back into a more traditional model of one problem, one solution, cheapest cost solution that's not delivering the value. So I think that that alone, taking a broader economic view of the project, of the impacts, the value that's being delivered, and finding governance structures and funding structures that facilitate that would make a huge impact. 
So don't just go for cheap. <laughs> that sounds like uh, uh, some good advice. And obviously the value calculus being different among stakeholders. Rowan, so recognizing that there are these trade-offs uh, inherent to infrastructure development, how can countries better manage that balance between the financial benefits and the social and environmental goals that we were discussing earlier? I think the most important thing is really to, to try and understand and recognize where those trade-offs occur and be able to make informed decisions about how to manage them and strike that balance. But but also, you know, on one hand, we have trade-offs, but on the other hand, we have uh, synergies. Uh, and this is related to what Anthony's just talking about, about really understanding the broad range of benefits, different types of benefits that are being um, provided to different types of stakeholders from infrastructure and trying to understand that and kind of capture all of that in uh, in the calculus and in, in the decision making, um, which isn't necessarily easy, uh, but it can have, uh, you know, it can, it can pay dividends um, when it's done. At UNEP, we and and our partners try and promote what what we refer to as as needs based integrated systems level approaches. So this really means um, taking service needs as a starting point. Uh, you know, considering how to meet those needs most effectively and sustainably using all the available options. So this could include, as as Anthony has talked about, alternatives to to new built sort of traditional infrastructure solutions. And this is where understanding uh, those broader benefits uh, is important. Um, then the second part is really thinking beyond the project. So recognizing that the built and natural infrastructure in, in different sectors and different locations are really part of this larger integrated system. And so understanding these relationships helps to identify and manage the trade-offs, but also uh, maximize these potential multiple benefits that, uh, that Anthony's talking about. Um, and then the third part of it is this idea of systems level approaches. And that's really, again, sort of thinking beyond the project and, and trying to put policies and processes in place that integrate sustainability and resilience in a, in a more systemic way rather than on a, on an ad hoc project by project basis. And if we're successful, we can have infrastructure that's better aligning service delivery with service needs. Uh, you know, generating efficiencies and and maximizing these these wider benefits, uh, increasing system wide uh, resilience and adaptability of our infrastructure systems, and ultimately just delivering more to people for the money that's invested in infrastructure. So, gentlemen, any burning thoughts that we might have missed over the course of this conversation you'd like to add? Maybe Anthony, I can start with you. Sure. I just want to underscore the importance of this topic. As I alluded to, for a long time, infrastructure was not in the public eye. It's been underfunded. It's been ignored. With follow-on of COVID-19, we've seen this massive investment in infrastructure. And I think a general societal awareness of infrastructure and what it provides to us. So this is really a critical time. So we are making this once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-century investment in infrastructure so at every level of society, we really need to be asking and demanding for quality infrastructure, for sustainable, resilient, equitable outcomes, as Rowan was talking about. So that would be my message to the audience. Wherever you are in the chain, even as a general citizen, ask your elected officials, talk about it, ask what is being done in public meetings to be sustainable. That really has a huge impact.
demand the good infrastructure you deserve. Rowan. You know, for me, the main thing is really that we need to think differently about infrastructure. We need to think differently about how we're delivering services, you know, what those services are, and really trying to get more out of our, our infrastructure investments. I think this this requires uh, better sort of integration and, and cross-pollination between different disciplines. So getting engineers sitting at the table with biologists and, and landscape architects and, and really trying to sort of cross-fertilize um, different approaches. And then also just raising awareness about the need for infrastructure and, and the potential of what it could look like. And then, and then helping to build the capacity to take those new ideas forward. Great. Diversity of decision makers, diversity of those who uh, do the execution for a diversity of outcomes. That's great. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Philip. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of this discussion. Thanks once again to our experts, Rowan and Anthony. Listeners, please stay tuned for the rest of the podcast series, where we explore more about infrastructure for good. Thanks again to Deloitte, our sponsors, and to Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability, our research partners. If you'd like more information about our Infrastructure for Good initiative, please visit infrastructure-for-good.economist.com.